You're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast, an interview show about art, craft, and creativity. This episode of Craft Sanity is sponsored by LibertyWorth.com. Libby Dibby Stuff and Style is all about being inspired by the joy of color and pattern, all things that are both vintage and new. Check out skirts, hand-stamped charms, baby slings, and bags at LibertyWorth.com and one-of-a-kind items at LibertyWorth.etsy.com. So let's get to it, folks. It's time to Craft Sanity. Welcome to episode 113 of the Craft Sanity Podcast. I'm very excited to bring you an interview today with Carrie Chapin. And Carrie is the author of the brand new book, The Handmade Marketplace, How to Sell Your Crafts Locally, Globally, and Online. It's really a helpful book for those looking to start a handmade business or even though I've been doing this for a little while, I learned plenty from reading this book. And in the interest of full disclosure, I will tell you that I did contribute to it. Very small contribution. I have a little cameo appearance on page 206 and it's a little Q&A and I'm talking about um, podcasting and how that can help you market your business. But I learned a great deal from the other contributors in the book and there's a great cast of characters and you're going to hear more about the contributors um, when I get talking to Carrie. But Carrie's story is really interesting because she's had experience both selling her own work but and also buying work, like shopping Etsy, like looking for artists on Etsy to then set up wholesale accounts with those people to sell in a brick and mortar shop when she did a stint where she managed a, a shop like that. And so she has a really interesting perspective and actually that experience is what led her to discover that those of us who sell handmade goods, some of us have a lot to learn when it comes to, you know, figuring out pricing and wholesale accounts and all that stuff. It's a, kind of a how-to business book without being written like a how-to business book. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, there's no, it's not textbooky. There's little quotes and tips from a lot of the movers and shakers in the art and craft world. And it's um, written in a, with a light voice that kind of makes it uh, easy to work your way through and not feel like, oh my gosh, we're talking about taxes now. Oh my goodness. It's done in an entertaining way, which is really great. And I think the chapter just on pricing your work, uh, the chapter that dis- you know it talks about just establishing basic business practices, is worth the price of the book because um, there's some really good information in here. Like I said, it's presented in a, in a nice and fun way. So I think that for those of you who want to check it out, it's definitely worth it. And I have an extra copy, so I'm going to give that away. So listen after the show to hear about how you can get in the drawing to win that. Yeah, so I'm going to stop talking now and let Carrie tell her story. Well, Carrie, I am so excited to have you on this episode of Craft Sanity. I think this is going to be really educational and inspiring for all the folks at home that have that handmade business dream or maybe they're in the midst of a handmade business but looking for ways to get the word out about their business, improve the way they're running things, and just make things a little smoother. But I, I congratulations on this book, The Handmade Marketplace, How to Sell Your Crafts Locally, Globally, and Online. It's pretty pretty huge. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pretty big accomplishment for you because you, you turned this around fairly quickly, as I recall. I mean, it seemed like, was it about a year? Yep, it happened in about a year. It's um, publishing 
publishing timelines are, are different for everybody. So somebody else may have a completely different experience. I have a friend who's writing a book right now, and he was given five weeks. <laughs> so, Whoa. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's a different experience for everybody who does it. But um, my timeline was actually probably a little over a year. Well, let's give people a chance to get to know you and your background. And if you could tell us a little bit about your creative history and how you made it to the point where you're a published author now. I grew up in two households, and they were both very, very different. My father and stepmother had a very lovely, traditional kind of home, and it was beautiful. My stepmother, her name is Robin, and she is very crafty. She made our summer clothes for my sister and myself every year. And she was a a wonderful, she is still a wonderful home decorator. And she was always sewing things or making wreaths or little things that hung on our doors, um, like on doorknobs and beautiful stockings at Christmas time. She's really an incredible crafter herself, although I don't think she would really label herself that way. But she was really good at setting an example of of making things with your hands when we were little. Mm -hmm. And then the other house that I grew up in with my mother and my stepfather was very different. My stepfather is an actor, and um, my mother has always been very politically active, and we lived in a large American city in a warehouse before there were such things as like people really living in loss kind of um, situations. Like, in fact, there wasn't even a school district for the downtown city that I lived in. You know, when I went to register for high school, they were like, "Mm, just go to whatever school you like. And, um, (laughs) but that house was filled with amazing creative things. There were old theater costumes and shadow boxes on the wall and hula hoops hanging from the ceiling and old pianos spread around and there was no walls in our warehouse so they were all made from theater sets and the walls of my bedroom were from a Tennessee Williams play called Outcry where yeah it was really amazing where this um uh, in Outcry this brother and sister are, are reclusive and they live in a house with this yard filled with sunflowers and so my my walls were the the yard set so it was just you know, pieces of wood painted in sunflowers. And it was um, it was a really creative household, too. My mom would say that she's not artistic at all, but that's not true because when my parents were still married, we were very poor. I think like a lot of young families, both of my parents are pretty young. And, um, you know, we had to I, – I write a little – story in in the handmade marketplace about how my aunt Peachy had given my mom some nail polish that she didn't want anymore but my mother wasn't you know she wasn't the kind of person to paint her nails but it was seen instead as an art supply so we made salt dough Christmas tree ornaments and without having any paint we used nail polish to paint them and Yeah. yeah and she always made made me houses out of you know, washing machine boxes and whatnot and construction paper. And we made a lot of bottle collages and things like that. I mean, so while my mom wouldn't identify herself as artistic at all, she actually has a lot of imagination. And so I sort of, as I spent 50% of my time in each place, got these really different perspectives on what it was to 
decorate your house with abandoned pianos or, you know, so a beautiful rocking horse in summer clothes. Yeah. So yeah, so it was a really great way to, to grow up. And then in the fourth grade, somebody taught me how to crochet an Easter basket with a, um, like, a country crock butter tub, a hole punch, a crochet hook, and some yarn. And we made these roughly Easter baskets, and we would secure a, like, a, a wire handle on the top. And then we would fill them up, and, and the woman who taught me how to do it would then distribute them at her church to the children in her church. And I just really loved crocheting. I loved it a lot. And I didn't watch a lot of TV as a kid. I was a big reader. And I found that I could crochet these Easter baskets and kind of read at the same time. And really? I think that that's where it all sort of began, yeah. That's a little tricky. So how did you manage that? Just kind of like... Um... <laughs> Glance at the page, glance at your work, glance at the page, glance at your work. <laughs> yeah, and I'm positive. I don't have one now to look back on, but I'm yeah. positive that they were not beautiful Easter baskets. <laughs> well, the thing is, though, I've made some of those, too, and it's funny because my, my great-grandmother used to make um, any butter tub at all, that any plastic butter tub, she would turn into a basket or some kind of thing that like that. And um, so... Uh, and I was a very big reader as a kid too, so um, I didn't try to do both at the same time, though. So I, my hats off to you, because if I would have thought of that, I would have been right there with you, <laughs> trying to yeah, it was, and crochet. Yeah, it was a really good way to go. Yeah, no, I <laughs> and, think that's you know, two of my favorite things at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't do it now, but I, I remember clearly doing it as a kid. And I, you know, just um, I spent a lot of time um, with Robin, my stepmother's grandmother, and she was a really creative person too. She would take like old bleach bottles or detergent bottles and turn them into purses, like covered in yarn. And my mother's mother would take, you know, milk caps and work thread around them and turn them into trivets and. So there was always just little things like that going on when I was growing up, and it was just a, a really good way, I think, to get sort of a creative foundation. And it really is very resourceful. Like, you know, I always say that my grandparents were the ultimate recyclers because absolutely nothing went to waste, you know, from a milk cap to a used an empty bleach bottle. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was, it was really good to grow up like that. So it sounds like you spent a lot of time uh, kind of do, picking up on some of this stuff and creating on your, you know, multitasking as you were creating. Um, what was your favorite thing to do as a kid? What What was your favorite craft? I loved paint by numbers and I loved crochet. And I you- also loved collages though. To, yeah. To be honest, I went through like a huge collage phase in junior high where it was, you know, all of my magazines cut up. And I used to read a lot of skateboarding and surfing magazines. And, um, you know, anything from just, like, pictures of surfers to vans, you know, all of those would eventually make their way to a cut-up brown paper bag and then somehow on my wall. I loved collaging. Oh, right on the wall. Also, yeah. yeah. Well, in the eighth grade, I think we had an art project where we made a bottle collage. You had to bring in a bottle of some sort and collage it with images. And I was really, I got really into that. But it was sort of a bummer for me because my parents didn't drink. And so uh, he didn't have <laughs> coming any, up, any... like, a, 
Yeah, like a good sized glass bottle was um, really hard to find <laughs> in my house. But I loved that project in eighth grade art class. Yeah. And it's, so, how much of that do you still do? Well, I don't really make collages anymore. However, I, I've come to realize, and this is sort of new agey, but I guess it's authentic, so I'll go ahead and say it. But um, I, I sort of came to realize that all the collages that I did when I was a kid were versions of what people now call vision boards. Okay. And so I sometimes still can pull together a pretty mean vision board, which has been really helpful. Uh, based around projects, I definitely did one for The Handmade Marketplace. When I knew I wanted to write this book, I made like a modern-day collage with, you know, images from the Internet. I wasn't necessarily cutting up a magazine mm -hmm. to make it. But, you know, when I had my ideal people that I wanted to be a part of Handmade Marketplace on this board, I had the person who I wanted to be my illustrator on the board. I had like a book cover that my husband helped me design um, on the board. And, you know, I, I hung it up near my writing desk. And it actually... Every person that I put on the vision board, except for one, became a part of my book. And um, I did get my illustrator that I wanted. And um, the person who I most wanted to write me a blurb did. So, I mean, I, I think that there's some power in the, that kind of intention. And it is a crafty thing to do. You know, I really had to look for the images that I wanted and design the book cover and make it pretty so I wouldn't mind it hanging on my wall for a year and um so that was maybe my most recent experience yeah. doing some sort of collage work well it's I crochet like... almost every day well that's good what kinds of stuff do you make with what are you like... just the scarves and hats um I, you know I I've never had a desire to really learn to make a sweater or a blanket you know I'm really satisfied like cranking out a scarf and two days and feeling pretty good about that. Like it's just enough to keep my hands busy mm -hmm. and it allows me to buy yarn, which I really like. And, um, I can't just do one, one thing at a time. So if I'm going to watch a movie, I need something in my hands or, um, I like to, to be doing a lot of different things at once. And so crochet is really, Good for that, especially not having a very complicated project where I'm not having to read the pattern or right. <laughs> keep track of anything. I can just keep going, but that might mean that the scarf I give you is really skinny in some spots and really wide <laughs> in other spots. <laughs> but hey, if you're having fun, if it keeps somebody warm, more power to you. But I want to get back to your 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 vision boards. I think that it. I love the fact that it, you did some. You kind of got into collage as a kid, and then have continued to apply that same technique and in a way that helped you with, a, you know, a major project, this book project. And I think that we can all take away something from that example, because it seems like a perfect way to organize a project, you know, to have it look pretty and be visually appealing, but at the same time, be a kind of a constant reminder to you as you're, you were sitting there working on it to be able to look up at that board and know that, yep, I'm right on track, you know, you're doing what you set out to do. So I think that's really lovely. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that's pretty You're cool. You're welcome. Yeah, so after you had this, you know, your collage uh, kind of binge in eighth grade, um, when through high school, were you artistic and crafty? Did you just keep it up um, through that time as well? 
Well, truthfully, I, I, I left home a lot younger than most people do, and I actually dropped out of high school in the 10th grade. Really? And, yep, I um, dropped out of high school in the 10th grade. I emancipated from my parents, and I got my GED, which was required by the state that I was living in, and I struck out on my own. So I didn't have a, a typical high school yes. experience at all. What did you do? Because after you, you became emancipated, um, what did you do after that? Well, I knew for sure that I wasn't going to be able to go to any sort of like alternative high school and work to pay for my rent and utilities and a phone bill and all the kinds of things that adults, you know, had to live on a daily basis that as a teenager, I depended on my parents to provide for me. So what I did was, is I became a nanny because that was going to supply me with room and board and a stipend. So I didn't have to worry about somebody renting an apartment to a 16-year-old, and I didn't have to worry about a utility bill. You know, I would have room, a room to sleep in, and I would have food, and then I would get a weekly stipend paycheck, and um, I would be able to save money for my big dream, whatever, you know, that was at the time. And I ended up doing that until I was, I did that for a few years, actually. And then I got, you know, to work with some really amazing families and, really great kids and had a good time. I got to do a lot of traveling with some of the families that I worked with and had a lot of adventures. And um, it was a good way for me to sort of, because I was still very young, you know, to ease into living without my parents. Now, were you still in the same community that you grew up in when you were no. working? Okay, where did you go to work? Because you, you grew up, remind me, you grew up... I grew up on part in Denver, Colorado. That's okay. where my mother and stepmother lived. And then I grew up part-time in North Carolina where my father and stepmother lived. Oh, wow. Lived. So there's quite so a it was distance. also different. Yeah, that's Yeah, it's distance. different parts of the country, different kinds of kids, different, you know, very different communities from a smaller town in North Carolina to a bigger city in Colorado. Sure. You know, it was very opposite, opposites all the way around. So you ended up um, working as a nanny in both both um, states? I mean, or? Nope. I worked as a nanny in New York City. Oh, okay. Okay. Wow. So, yep, you, I, so you were 16 in New York City working as a nanny. That's an adventure. Yeah. That's quite an adventure. It was. It was, was it, a lot of fun. But... Was it hard to get um, a gig as a nanny? Because if, if these people, you know, people see the 16-year-old come in their way who is emancipated, you know, not in school, was it hard to convince people that, you know, you were serious about being a nanny? Or was it, did you have a fairly easy time getting families to hire you? Well, um, I think it would be very different to try to do it today, but people have so many more resources today, and I'm not sure that I would ever bring a you know, a 16-year-old kid that was gutsy enough to leave her family, like, (laughs) into my own family personally. But um, it was pretty easy, actually. And the truth of it is is that I answered an ad in a paper. There was an ad in a paper for a woman who ran an agency. Okay. And I answered her ad, and she told me that she connected nannies with families who needed them. And she met me at a McDonald's, I remember, and I filled out her application there. And um, 
one of the questions on the application was, you know, what are your hobbies or your interests? And at the time, and I, you know, it's so funny to think back on it now when, when I'm so different and times are so different, but I filled out the questionnaire, like really honestly, and as a pretty, you know, big-headed teenager, and um, when it asked me what my interests or hobbies were, I put down that I loved a certain musician that I was pretty much obsessed with at the time, and it turns out that the first family that she showed my application to worked with that musician, and they thought that my answer was really funny, that I was, like, totally, you know, in love with this musician. And what what, what, what musician was it? It was, and so kind of is, Harry Connick Jr. (laughs) (laughs) And this, you know, and when I was 16, he only had jazz music, you know, he wasn't really a big singer back then. And, um, but I, I loved jazz. I loved it. And I still do. And that is pretty unusual for a 16 year old to, to be talking about jazz because, uh, you know, I know that when I was 16, you know, I'd listen to jazz and stuff, but I think people were picking more mainstream kind of music. So that definitely would have set you apart for sure, you know. Well, I, it must have worked because they they thought it was so funny that I was, you know, like really, <laughs> really into Harry Connick Jr. And they hired me. So did and you get to I meet Harry Connick Jr.? Did, did you get to meet I did. Yeah? So yeah, I did. How How long into the gig did it take to get to meet him? About seven months, maybe. They yeah. worked with him really indirectly, and and it was it was just like all you know the stars aligning, and all I did was cry. Just I cried like a fool, like, <laughs> and was so embarrassed afterwards. But did you get to like talk happened. to him? I mean, well, you were crying, but I mean, was he was he like um, what was this meeting like? I mean, was it a brief like hello goodbye kind of thing, or was he hanging around for a while? Um, he was, he was at the house to pick something up and I was actually in my room and they called me downstairs and he was there and I I just like burst into tears and I was also wearing my pajamas, which wasn't (laughs) the the highlight of my moment or, you know, the best part of the situation by any stretch of the imagination, but, um, I cried a lot and hugged him, and he hugged me back, and he gave me an autographed picture, and he spelled my name correctly, which was a big deal. I mean, I'm sure they told him how to spell my name, but it seemed like such a big deal to me at the time, like, that he would know that my name was K-A-R-I and not C-A-R-R-I-E. And um, I still have that picture framed to this day. It's one of my most treasured possessions. Yeah. That's great. That's really great. So this really was this really was a seriously um, big adventure for you when you decided to go out to New York and you know take on this whole different life and um, meeting famous people, uh, personal heroes of yours. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. So what? How long? So you said you worked as a nanny for about three years. Is that? Yeah. With the I'm same there. with the same family, or did you go to different families? I had a family, I, I worked for a family before the New York family, but for very briefly. Okay. And um, and there was nothing bad about that situation, just this more exciting opportunity came up and I took it. Oh, okay. Over the course of the time that I was a nanny, I had 
two families okay. that I worked for. And then what did you do after after you decided to do something else after being a nanny? Um, I went back home to Denver for a, a brief vacation, and I actually got stranded there in a big snowstorm. And um, I didn't leave. I just stayed there. I had one suitcase, like $80, and my autographed picture of Harry Connick Jr. with me. And um, that was it. I never went back to New York. Okay, so you were and with the family? Were you planning to – you were you were just taking a break and – um, a vacation and ended up staying? I began working at a coffee shop called Muddy's Java Cafe, which was in a scarier part of downtown Denver. And it had a theater in the basement where my stepfather had put on a lot of his shows for many years. And I was in Muddy's one night because, you know, I had no money and I was very poor and I was hoping that they would give me something free to eat. <clears throat> and one of the waiters couldn't set up his section one night and they asked me if I would set up his section, which just basically meant putting sugar and salt and pepper on the tables. And I did. And so I did it that night and I, I didn't leave that job for five years. I ended up being hired and basically working as a waitress and making coffee for a really long time. And it was one of the most incredible times of my life. I met my closest friends there. I rediscovered my creative side there. I um, fell in love there for the first time. I It totally changed my life. It was open from 4 p.m. until 4 a.m. Oh, my goodness. And it was filled with the most ragtag bunch of people you could imagine. I mean, there was punk rockers. There was homeless people. There were scholars. There were chess players. There were old men in the bookstore that, you know, could remember when Jack Kerouac came through. There was buddies had been around for a really long time. It was this crazy mixture of people, and I loved it. I loved it so much, and I think that that's where I actually kind of really grew up and where I was able to see a, a path for myself a lot more clearly was during my year spent at Muddy's. That's awesome. To get, yeah. to get clarity at Muddy's um, <laughs> is yeah, awesome. Exactly. That's really awesome. Yeah, so it sounds like that experience um, helped shape you into who you are today and um, so when you, was it hard to leave when you decided to move on? No, it wasn't hard to leave. Muddy's was, um, I think everybody, or at least I hope everybody, I hope that this, I'm not the only person this happened to, but I think eventually people reach a point where they think like, I need a quote unquote real job. I need, a, you know, health insurance or I need <laughs> right. to, um, be awake at three in the afternoon so I can go to the bank. And also it would be nice to go to the grocery store and not the 24 hour one. <laughs> you know? right. So, right. so I just reached a point where I wanted to try something else. And um, since I was so close with all of the people there, you know, I didn't have to lose a lot of what I wanted from my muddy's life, but I could try something different. And so I did. I just got a different kind of job during the daytime, and um, and it was fine. What kind of job did you do? I think then I was still waiting tables at various restaurants, 
but I went to work for Colorado AIDS Walk, which was and is, I'm sure it still exists, it is um, a, a big, like, you know, morning walk. I think that, you know, they happen all over the country, right. and yeah. now they happen for a lot of different different causes. But I went to go run, or help run, actually, the Colorado AIDS Walk. Okay. And so that was a lot of fun. So then I had many years of not-for-profit event planning and, um, you know, event planning and production experience. Okay, and it sounds like you were still doing some kind of crafting on the side. Yes, between between Muddy's, at Muddy's I met um, my first painting mentor, which was a, uh, a woman from New Zealand named Claire Inwood. And she is one of the most incredible people I've ever met. And um, she was working as a cook at Muddy's, but she would make these incredible little dolls by hand out of scrap fabric that she would find lying around. And she also was going to thrift stores and yard sales and she was buying wooden furniture and sanding it down and painting it. And then she would sell it at a gallery. And I was completely captivated by this. And she taught me how to do it myself. And so while, you know, while I was working at Muddy's and then even after when I went to work at Colorado AIDS Project, she, and while I was waiting tables, I used my own furniture painting and restoration to really supplement my income. Awesome. And I sold the stuff that I made at galleries in town. And Denver has a lot of really big art fairs. There's um, the Cherry Creek Arts Festival. There's the People's Fair. And they all take place in a, a beautiful park downtown. And um, or most of them take place in a big park in downtown Denver. And I would have booths at, like, the People's Fair. And I would sell things that I had made. I was really into making clocks for a long time. Dressers, chairs, wooden boxes, salad bowl sets, like anything I could find at the thrift store that was made of wood was absolutely fair game for my sandpaper and my paintbrushes. And I did a lot of dumpster diving and found furniture that way too. And um, I loved it. I loved doing that. I still do that for myself now, but not for any kind of profit or money. Yeah, what's well, a wonderful um, skill to have because you can turn discarded, you know, furniture into beautiful things for your own home. So that's invaluable. Yeah, yeah, I love it. You know, we we've had the same dining room table for many years, and it's like twelve different colors, and it has chalkboard paint on it now, and. It's, you know, it's it's so fun. It's really liberating for me, and I love to get lost in a project like that where time passes so quickly, but I feel like I haven't really done any thinking necessarily. Mm-hmm. I've just, like, been able to zone out and just sand and paint and draw and explore and, and have a really good time, and it's it's been a really wonderful, wonderful release. And, you know, so our house is, is really colorful and doesn't match anything and you know so it's, it's in a lot of ways it's liberating because we never think like oh we can't have a purple sofa because we totally can you know, because, <laughs> yeah I think that's great yeah and why limit yourself you know yeah yeah so so it really works out for me as a you know the home decorator because I can never make up my mind and now I don't have to I can just have whatever is appealing at the time because it's bound to match something that's awesome so yeah. 
So you did. Uh, you were doing event planning for nonprofits, and then um, you did that. It sounds like for a while. Um, and then, what have you done? Uh, kind of weaving your way, weaving. If we weave our way to your current uh, station in life here, um, what did you do? You know, what did you do after that to kind of get to the point you're at right now? I um, started working for a theater company, and I was doing volunteer coordination, and um, a lot of that had to do with marketing and public relations, and I needed to really market our volunteer programs to what we call the underserved communities in Denver, so um, ethnic populations, poor populations, like, you know, it was my job to go out and convince these people that theater had a place for them, that, you know, they were welcome and needed as a part of our audience, on our stages, behind the scenes, like we needed everybody and we wanted everybody to participate in our theater. And that led me to a lot of different marketing and PR positions. And I started doing a lot of freelance public relations in the evening on my own time. And some of that was for book companies, for publishers, when they would have an author come into town. Sometimes I would be the liaison between the book publicist and like our local television stations or local talk radio stations or, you know, the the local bookstores, I would sort of coordinate Denver legs of, of writers tours and, um, did a lot of freelance PR for various nonprofit organizations. I was on the board of directors for a couple of different arts organizations and the skill that I would trade for making an annual donation, which is often expected of board members, was mostly my PR and marketing skills and event planning skills. And um, I've been able to use those skills, again, to say the word skills like 10 times in one sentence. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I was really able to parlay that into a, a lot of really fun situations, and it opened up a lot of doors that otherwise I would not have, number one, been able to afford to get in, or number two, you know, if if they weren't hiring, I could always sort of come in and become involved by offering these kinds of services to people, mm-hmm. and it just sort of took off from there. So sometimes I would get paid, but sometimes I would get paid and, you know, a ticket to a really fabulous party or an event, or I would be rewarded with an amazing painting or something along those lines, and it was really it really worked out for me putting myself out there like that. And it, you know, it all sort of happens organically. Once you decide that you want to do something, if you really can, can focus yourself to think, okay, any way that I can get this job done, I'm going to get it done. You will get the job done. Mm-hmm. And true. I just sort of, you know, <laughs> invited myself everywhere. And if that, you know, meant that I needed to write a press release or write brochure copy, or schedule an interview for somebody, then I did it. And I did that for many, 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 many years until three years ago. Well, that's really cool. And where do you think this public relations, um, like, forte comes from? Because it sounds like you weren't formally trained in it. It's just something that you're naturally very good at. My stepfather had a magazine for a long time called the Rocky Mountain Theater Guild, and also back before there were really computers, you know, like we didn't have two phone lines. So if you wanted to order tickets to one of his plays, you, you know, the phone number that was on all of the posters or advertisements was our house. Oh, I so see. So when I was at my mother and stepfather's house, you know, I couldn't answer the phone and say hello like all other kids. Right. <laughs> we had to answer the phone and say, Rocky Mountain Theater Guild, how may I help you? Uh, <laughs> and that could be at 10 o'clock at night or 6 o'clock in the morning because who knows when people want to call to buy tickets. Right, right. And... 
it just it just sort of happened. And then working for nonprofits where they don't have a lot of financial resources, so they can't always bring in professionals to do the jobs that need to be done, which later would really help me when I was on the other side of nonprofits. Right. Um, I worked with a lot of amazing volunteers, you know, when I needed their commercial directed. You know, we would have to find a volunteer in the community who had a camera, who had editing skills, who had access to a studio to do the editing, who had a microphone. You know, then we would need people to be in the commercial. And then so when you have a project that you're really passionate about and that you really want to promote and you need to find people to do all of these jobs, I learned a lot that way by working with volunteers who were helping me on projects, you know, and then later I was able to turn around and be that volunteer helping somebody else on projects. So a lot of it came from just asking and putting myself out there and and asking people to help me and then later offering to help other people. It's interesting how it all kind of set you up to do this book because your book is all about you made a list of people, you had certain things you wanted to accomplish in the book and you tapped the resources in the community of crafting that you thought could be helpful to you and and you put it together. And so as you were talking about what you would do with the theater situation, I'm like, well, she kind of does this with everything she approaches. And that's just such a great skill to have because I think a lot of times people get, they get these big ideas and then they get overwhelmed by them and don't really know how to go about, you know, finding resources in the community and recruiting people. And you're really good at that. And, you know, it, it, it shows in your work. So that's fantastic. Well, thank you. It's, it's so much fun too. I mean, there's, there is so much that I want to do and so much that I have wanted to do. And for me, I'll tell you what, it all starts with a list. <laughs> Every single thing that I want or need or desire to make or do or write or record, it all starts with a list. Do you carry a notebook around? I do definitely carry a notebook around. You know, I mean, I've, if it works for going to the grocery store, I mean, why wouldn't it work to make a dream come true? It right. absolutely does. I'm a big, big advocate of list making. Well, I think if you put it down on paper, um, you know, and, and write down what you want, um, I have lists that I kind of update every now and then, and it's such a kick to be able to cross things off the list, you know, like big goals. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wow, that was awesome, you know. Let's talk a little bit about, I know the next, uh, I think it was the next job you had after the theater. Was that when you started managing the shop that sold, um, that stocked handmade goods from artists? Mm-hmm. I did. I, I was working then in a different state for a different theater as a publicity assistant, and it was... Um, sort of a step down like level of where I had been before, except for it was in the right part of the country. And I, and the work was really easy and it um, was a really fun theater company and I enjoyed it, but I got this offer sort of out of the blue to interview. I was actually writing a so I'm going to back up here for a second. I've always really liked to write and I've always wanted to be a writer and I had done a lot of writing in Colorado for, like, little local magazines and the paper and things like that. And um, when we moved to Massachusetts, I decided that I still wanted to write beyond writing press releases for my job, which was the majority of the writing that I did was catalog copy and brochure copy and press releases. And I, I wanted to write about my own things. And so I contacted the editor of 
our local newspaper and asked her to lunch and told her that I wanted to write for the paper. And she asked what I could write, and a lot of art stuff was out since I was really involved in the arts community as a paid person, mm-hmm. so I couldn't really do reviews or anything like that. A lot of the arts stuff was a conflict of interest, but she um, said she, if she thought of anything that was good for me that she would get back to me. And she did a little while later. She asked me to go to a local store that sold home goods, and they sold um, manufactured home goods, but then a lot of stuff that was made by hand. And she, from local people and people from around the world that that made things by hand. And she asked me if I would do a little write-up of the shop. And I went into the store, and I had been in a few times, but never with, like, my writer pants on. You know, I had only (laughs) been in there as a chopper. (laughs) Did you say say with your writer pants on? (laughs) Yeah. I love that. I'm going to borrow that. (laughs) Yeah, go go ahead. Writer pants. So I went in there with like a different objective this time and I ended up noticing the music and I ended up really talking about a lot of the products and the process of how they got into the store and I had a really great time, like an exceptionally great time and I felt really like sparked by this experience and I think what it had really done was it had made me want to start making things again. At that point, my little mitten business was, you know, not not really happening, and that was a, a while ago and that sort of thing. And But I, I felt just rejuvenated in the store. I just loved it, and I'm not really sure why, but I just so felt so fantastic there. And I was working on my article, and I was writing the article, and feeling really good about it. And two days before my deadline to turn in the article, the woman who was managing the store at the time called me and said, you know, I've been accepted to veterinary school and I'm going to be leaving this job. Would you be interested in being the store manager? Because if you are, I would like to put your name up to the owner and set up a meeting between the two of you. And, um, Hopefully this happens to everybody a few times in their life, but I got that total feeling of like being really, really scared and really, really alive and excited at the same time. For some reason, even though managing a store or working in a store had never occurred to me, this just seemed so incredible. Like, I totally want to work in this little boutique and listen to the magnetic fields all day and, you know... Surround, be surrounded by really beautiful objects, and I could totally do this. And um, I talked it over with my husband, and he, you know, said that if I really wanted to pursue it, that I should. And I met with the owner, and I remember feeling so ballsy, sort of like we had this interview, and at the end of it, she was like, "Okay, I'll be in touch." And I was so excited that I just said. That's not good enough for me. <laughs> I need to know if you're going to hire me because I, I really want to do this. And I don't want to wait for you to think about it and call me back later. I know immediately that I want to work for you. Do you know immediately if you want me to work for you? And um, she kind of chuckled and she was like, I, I think that this is a good match, but I definitely need to think about it. Yeah. And um, luckily, she called me back like two hours later and offered oh. me the job. So whatever happened so to your like, story? What happened to your story? 
that you were doing? It was not printed. Okay, because you, you kind of had to, like, then tell them, um, I'm an employee of the store now. <laughs> yeah. I had to, to tell the editor, like, um, actually, that story you sent me on, I'm now the manager, and it went from story to Job. career change. Yeah. So your, <laughs> so. your, your, your writer pants turned into manager pants. <laughs> they sure did. And it was, it was, it was so great. Like, I felt really bad about leaving the theater job because I hadn't been there that long. I think we had only been in town like seven months and I had, we had moved from Alabama to Massachusetts for me to take that job. And it was, it was pretty scary, but it's like one of those really great times where you just know that you're doing the right thing, no matter what the costs are like pay cut if I can handle it. Okay. Like from no insurance or from having insurance to no insurance, like you just know that this is the start of something really, really super. And um, I just really believed my gut when it said, go for it. And so I did. And I'm so thankful that the woman hired me. You know, she went in the interview. She's like, what stores have you worked at? And I was kind of say, well, none. But I feel confident that I can do it. And, you know, she's how, you know, have you ever bought anything for a company or a store? And I'm like, ooh. Aside from T-shirts for volunteers, no. But I'm confident I can do it. I buy things every day. You know, I actually live in a house that has stuff in it. So I don't know why I couldn't buy stuff to put in your store. (laughs) Because I can (laughs) buy stuff to put in my own house. So it's another way of just translating, like, what you do in real life to what you want to do for money. Right. And seeing where those connections are and then convincing somebody that the connections are good enough. And then having it work out and that's what I did and that's when you started to realize that 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 the artists and crafters out there needed some help when it came to pricing their work that's right that's right I was um Etsy was still a relatively new website at the time and it was um like I think by the time I by the time Etsy came into my life there wasn't even a thousand stores and it was still very small and very concentrated and um it was again just something else that I felt so in love with I loved loved Etsy and I was on it every day even at my theater job when I would have like an internet break it was always going to Etsy and buying things like I bought crazy stuff in the beginning because there wasn't as much selection as there is now so everybody I know got like a handmade nightlight cover (laughs) or you know, just like what, whatever was for sale there, I was definitely buying it because I was so excited by the whole concept. And so when I took over the shop and I had a budget to buy things to stock the shop, I turned to Etsy to find things that I wanted to sell because I thought that I would definitely, you know, kind of scoop the other stores in our – we, at the time, we lived – and this was not in Northampton. This was across a mountain in the Berkshires, which is a really beautiful, really um, touristy part of Massachusetts. There's a, a lot of theaters there, a lot of world-class theaters. Tanglewood is there, which is the summer home of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Um, it's a lot of weekend people, and so – Although it's very local, and there's there's not a lot of chain stores there. A lot of it is boutiques, and um, there's a lar- a really 
big focus on culture and the arts. So, you know, the stores that I, that were my competition were really fantastic. And I thought that I could scoop them if I started getting products like I was buying for myself from Etsy. And so I started contacting sellers on Etsy saying, you know, I have this little store. This is what my store is like. These are the things I already sell. And what you make is a really good match for my customer and my aesthetic. And I, I, I would I would like to have you be a part of what I'm doing here. And that's when I came to realize, like, oh, <laughs> even if people want to work with me, they don't they don't really know how, which is okay because, you know, I didn't really know. I was making it up as I went along. But it's, you know, so I was able to take the experience I had from ordering from a large wholesale manufacturing company and translate what I was doing with them into what I could do with a person who made something by hand and so on a much smaller scale. So, you know, I would ask a, a handmade maker, can I see your line sheet? Do you have other pictures of things? Could I see a sample of, of this hat? Could I, you know, so I can feel it and touch it and make sure that I really do want to sell it in my store. And people would say, what? I, <laughs> I, I don't know how to do that. Or I don't know what that is, or I've never heard of that. Or I don't have wholesale prices. I'm not sure what wholesale is. Or uh, of course I can't send you a sample. I can't send you a hat for free. Um, or things like that. So, you know, I really ended up spending so much of my time focused on these um, handmade sellers and trying to figure out how to work with them and how to make it easier for them so that instead of being afraid or intimidated by my request, they would be excited and empowered and feel like they were in charge and that they could really do this. And that's how the idea for the Handmade Marketplace was born. Because you do give guidance in your in your book about how people can go about the whole pricing, tackle that. But what is there any kind of recommendation that you can share just for those listening that don't have a copy right in front of them right now? Anything that they could just take away as kind of a, a rule of thumb or some guidance that they could apply if they want to explore wholesale as an option for their business? I would say the number one thing to to consider if you're going to wholesale your product is, and it's so basic that it's almost laughable, but is make sure that you are comfortable with the number. If you are not comfortable with the number, if it is too low for you, even if it fits into a formula, even the formula that I suggest in the book, then raise it. Never, ever sell anything at full price or at a sale price or at a wholesale price that you are not 100% comfortable with. If somebody thinks that your price is too high for what you're making, then they're not your customer. And that's okay because not everyone is going to be your customer. Not everyone is going to be the audience for my book. Not everyone is going to want to loom. You know, yeah, that's it's, true. Um, that's true. Your and this and this is kind of a hard lesson to learn because it's emotional and so often we hear, don't take it personally. You know, well, <laughs> I had a funny experience with my publicist just last week. I asked for um, a certain kind of coverage and she said, I don't know if we're going to do that with the handmade marketplace. And I, you know, sent her back an email right away and said, Why not? You know, why aren't you going to do that for my book? And she wrote back and said, don't take it personally. And then she put um, like a little happy face on it because she knows that that's one of my biggest things. But <laughs> it's so hard to not take things personally when 
in a lot of ways it is personal, you know, but to separate your business self from your emotional self can be really difficult. And, you know, that's one of the things that you really need to do with your prices. Mm -hmm. If, If any price that somebody wants something for is too low, then don't sell it to them. You came up with the idea while you're working at the uh, managing this um, shop. And what was the name of the shop that you were managing? It was called Fuchsia Home. Okay. And it was a part of uh, it was a part of a larger company. The woman who owned the shop also owned this really fabulous textile company called Crispina. Oh and yeah. Crispina. Yeah. Yeah. So she, Crispina is a woman. And she started a company a long time ago, and she ended up selling it to another woman. And um, the Crispina remained in, in charge of the textile company. And when the owner decided to close down the textile company, the store was um, was a was you know a part of those cuts. The store handled all of the mail order. For Christina.com. So if you called, if you called the store or went on the website and you ordered a blanket or a pillow or a rug mm-hmm. for your home from Christina, the store would send it out. I see. And yeah, so when the when the big company closed down, the store that was intentionally opened to sell the Crispina product, and then the store grew. So that's when other things got added in. But originally, it was just open to sell the Christina line. I see. And so when Christina, the textile company, closed down, the store closed down with it because they were connected. Okay. And so I became unemployed, and that was two years ago. And that's, you know, so I sat down with my notebook and said, what what do I want to do? Because I live in this very, like, niche community. I don't really want to go back to theater because I've never been happier than when I was working in the store. And, um, a lot of the businesses here, like I said before, are locally owned. And so a lot of the people manage their own stores or they buy for their own stores. So it wasn't a lot of work for somebody like me mm-hmm. because people did it themselves. Right. And so I sat down with my notebook and said, okay, <laughs> what's next in life? Because I need something to do. And, um... I had always wanted to write, and I always thought that I would write a book, except for I always knew that I would never write a fiction book. I'm not a fiction writer. My husband is an amazing fiction writer, and um, a lot of my friends are fiction writers, and that just wasn't going to be me. I think that that's one of the hardest jobs that you could have <laughs> to make up a compelling story, like, out of thin air. Yeah, that is And so the people. Yeah, that's oh, you know, I'd rather, I don't know what I would rather do, but a lot of other things <laughs> in writing. So I, I knew that there was a local publisher in my county, and I um, knew that I wanted to write a book. And the publisher, Story Publishing, does a lot of, um, they have a really interesting mission, and the books that they publish are really interesting. I mean, they, they publish everything from, how to raise farm animals to cooking books to craft books to how to maintain your barn to how to can, you know, your garden harvest to how to grow a garden from seeds. I mean, all of their books are are very useful Mm -hmm. and their craft books are very beautiful. And I thought, okay, well, 
here's my list, write a book. Like that was the only thing on the list. And, and I thought, what are my book ideas? And I came up with three book ideas and I contacted the publisher and said, you know, I live in your county and I would like to write a book and I have some ideas and I understand the basic concepts of writing a proposal and I would like to do that, but I would like to discuss these ideas with somebody first to see if any of them are even viable because if not, I will go back to the idea list and figure out something else. And um, I'm so lucky, this amazing woman named Deborah Balmas, who is my editor, took my call, agreed to meet me. Um, she asked for a, a proposal for as good as I could make it on my own. And she said even if the project wasn't right for story, that she would help me perfect the proposal to send somewhere else if it was going to be a better match for someone else. So, you know, she agreed to meet with me before even knowing if anything I was going to do was even going to be right for her company. That's pretty awesome. Which is, a, yeah. um, it's a definite plus to small town living. Oh yeah. You know, people, people who are really like, yeah, I can totally help you with that. Um, so I wrote my proposal and sent it to her and we set a date to meet and I met with her and the idea I was most excited about, she rejected. She <laughs> said um, <laughs> she said it wasn't a really good idea and that it would be great for a magazine series, like a series of articles for a magazine, but that it probably wasn't right for a book. And then she said, when I hear you talking about why you're interested in, in handmade items and why you're interested in crafts, it's obvious to me that your passion lies somewhere else like I can hear you change when you talk about things like marketing or inspiration or how people do things <laughs> you know you become a lot more animated and it's so much fun to watch have you ever thought about writing a book like that and I said well I've done so much of that kind of writing you know when I worked with these artists at Fuchsia Home I would I have to send them that kind of information and I don't know, like I kind of, I guess was thinking that that part of it was, you know, like I was moving on to something different. Like you've already done that. Yeah. Yeah. in <laughs> once, you know, but of course she only knew a little bit of that. And, um, once she said that, I remember being really like grumble, grumble, grumble. I thought that this other idea was like so amazing and everybody loves me and, you know, like why didn't this work out? And, and, you know, oh, I really want this other thing to happen. And I got into the car with my husband who patiently waited in the parking lot for an hour and a half for me to have this meeting and was because we were driving on our way to Boston that day. And he, I said, she rejected my idea, but she had this other thought. And he said, um, and I told him sort of at the time, like the rough idea for the handmade marketplace. And he said, I can't believe that you didn't lead with that because it was on my idea list. I was just really more excited about this other idea. And he said, that's the one, that's the book that you should write. And um, so I really wanted to write a book. And the more I thought about it, the more excited I did get. So you came out of that meeting um... – it wasn't until it sounds like you close, you know, you get in the car and your husband's like, yeah, of course, this is a good one. This is a good idea. Um, then did you send your proposal back in? Is that you made a proposal for that yep. idea? And then, and then did you just kind of hit the ground running? How fast did you know, have a contract and all that? 
Um, I, I did. I, I had to go home and rewrite a whole new proposal and start from scratch. And um, the more I wrote the proposal, the more I was really, really excited about the whole concept. And it was like I, I was becoming so excited by the whole idea that I had to cut myself off from the Internet and I had to cut myself off from the bookstore because I was afraid of being influenced by other people or websites or blogs or books. And I really wanted to feel like I was doing something absolutely from my heart and from my perspective. That was what I really wanted to, to do. And I wanted it to be really... Um, here's this word again that I sometimes have trouble with, but I wanted it to be really authentic. I really wanted to own it 100%. And um, I wrote the proposal, and I let a few people read it. I actually wrote the proposal in about a day, which if anybody, you know, has ever written a book proposal, that's a really super quick time. Yeah, that is. And, um, but I got sort of the bones of the proposal which I felt was, you know, really good <laughs> at the time, um, down. And I let a few people read it. And I asked them not for their responses to the proposal. Like, I don't want to know if you think this is a good idea. I don't want to know if you would read this book. I want to know what questions you have when you're done reading it. Like, what questions do you have? If you don't have a question, I don't want to know about it right now. And the people who read the proposal came back with some really great questions. And I used those questions to further flesh out the proposal because that told me, in my way of thinking, like what was missing and what what wasn't there. And what's so funny is from the time that I wrote the proposal to the time I finished writing the book, there were aspects of the world that didn't even really exist in on my radar in such a short time. Like Facebook wasn't used by everybody that I know. I knew like one other person that knew about Twitter. Like, you know, there was like 60,000 people on Twitter, not 60 million. And um, which just shows you how fast things can change, you know? So but somebody you, had a question get, like, that... Yeah, once you get Oprah and Martha on Twitter, then, you know, everyone's on Twitter, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was really incredible. One of the questions I got back said, how can social media help me with my business? And I thought, social media? You know, ding, why didn't I think of that? And then, you know, so that was uh, like something that I went back and re-added into the proposal like in in my second draft and um so I finished I got you know then I took it back to the same people and said okay now I want to hear your your real thoughts like no more questions because it is what it is (laughs) but do you see any problems or you know what 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 are your impressions and after I got their feedback and applied it I turned in the proposal in August I believe And when you turn in a proposal, it's not up to one person. It's up to a committee of people that work for the publisher. And they have these meetings that are called at my publisher. You know, it could definitely be something different at another publisher, but they're like editorial meetings where all the people who are involved with making the book happen get together because they have to have perspectives from everybody, designers, writers, editors. I think sometimes other authors can chip in, um, you know, what is this book going to be like to print? Because there's a lot of things that you have to address in your proposal, or at least the kind that I wrote. And I want to just jump off the topic for a quick second to say everybody's experience can be 
completely different. Requirements for publishers can be completely different. Um, expectations, ideas, things that they require can be different for everybody. So this is just speaking to my experience with story, specifically story publishing. Um, so there's so many people involved in the process of deciding if a book will get made or not. And I had to include things in my proposal like, this is what I want the book to look like. I want it to be this big. I want it to be illustrated. Or I could have said, you know, I want photographs. And it's not that they're going to do all of the things that I ask. It's just that they want to know, are we really compatible? Could they make a book like the book that I want to write? And um, these meetings don't happen every day <laughs> or even weekly, these editorial meetings. In my case, I'm not sure how often Story has them, but I happened to turn in my proposal when there was a meeting just a few weeks away. So I had to wait about a month and a half, which was excruciating for me because I was so excited. I really wanted to tell people, like, I think I'm going to write a book. I'm trying to write a book. I, I, I might write a book. <laughs> I really just wanted to share it with everybody. But then, you know, I didn't want to say later, like, yeah, I'm not writing a book. <laughs> or, no, yeah, I changed my mind. I decided to work at the natural health food grocery store instead. You know, I didn't want to go back and take it back. So I had to wait about a month and a half, and then I got the phone call that said they had accepted my proposal and they would like to offer me a contract. And um, the rest is history. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And so did you work with an agent, or did you go directly just dealing with the publisher directly? I went just to the publisher because um, getting an agent is a whole other thing. And it's, um, I was lucky enough to, to call my, to call the publisher and ask for advice and assistance. So I had somebody there that I was working with directly. Right. And I turned in the kind of proposal that she and I had discussed. I mean, I so turned it, in the concept so it probably that she and I had discussed. It would have been kind of strange at that point to say, oh, wait, time out. I'm going to go get my agent on board here. <laughs> you know, I mm -hmm. mean, because you've already established this personal relationship with somebody that you trusted. She helped you out. That's true. Yeah. But um, agents should definitely not be overlooked. I mean, who knows? Maybe I would have gotten paid more if I had an agent. Maybe I would have gotten um, publicity things written into my contract if I had had an agent, things that I want to happen for my book. Maybe I would have gotten a different kind of deadline if I had had an agent. An agent would be incredibly helpful. And I am fairly impulsive, and I really, really, really wanted to write this book. And, I mean, I probably would have done it no matter what. You know, but agents, I do hope to someday get an agent. <laughs> so, I mean, so I can it sounds just, like that's something that you're open, you want to do in the future then. Is have an agent. Yeah, I, I think it would be, I, I think that agents can know and do things that I couldn't know and do. And this is, this is a, a, a problem I think that happens in the creative community a lot is that where are our resources? How do you know if somebody asks you to contribute a craft to a, a compilation craft book? How do you know if you should get paid for that craft? How do you know if you should sign your rights over to that? How do you know how much is a fair amount of money? How do you, you know, most people are just like, yes, I'm so excited that, you know, which is exactly how I was, that they would, um, you know, 
do anything to be a part of something that sounds so great. And, and a big problem with that is, is we don't have the resources to figure that stuff out. I couldn't go to a website to say, is this much money fair or is this much money incredible or is this like winning the book publishing lottery or is this like standing on the corner with an open guitar case reading my book out loud and being happy for the change that people drop in. I am really bad with metaphors sometimes. Did you, <laughs> Sorry, did you but... consult with other authors? Like, did, Do you have any anybody else you could consult <clears throat> with and show your contract to and say, okay, how does this look? I did have um, – I, I do have a friend who is local to me who has written many books, and I took my contract to her and asked her for advice, and she gave me advice, which I then – asked story to make some changes to my contract based on what my friend had said. Okay. Um, but it's, it's, it can be so funny because I, you know, at, um, I have a group of friends and we all live in the same area and we're all on Twitter. So we started this thing like a year and a half ago where we have breakfast once a, once a month, just our little Twitter group or whatever. And in this group, this group is entirely made up of writers, oddly enough. And, um, so I was sitting next to one of the women in my group at breakfast, and she asked me what my advance was, and I told her, and she, like, almost spit her food out. She was laughing so hard. And she said, oh, my God, that's, that's like, nothing. That's barely any kind of money at all. But she's also a New York Times bestseller <laughs> writer who, at this very moment, is in Hollywood negotiating the movie deal for one of her books that she's written. So, like, writing a book and having a contract to her is completely different than me writing a book on my level for my audience, you know? So, it's funny because the perspective is, just like with anything else, is completely different depending on who you're talking to. But it would be so great if there was a place where people who want to write craft books could go and say, you know, how does it work? How much should I expect? What should I think about? And that's kind of, that is, and that is where the agents do come in because yeah. you know, there are, there are authors who will tell, you know, talk quietly, you know, the quiet whispers to each other and say, okay, I got this much. I mean, you don't want to public, most people don't want to publicly talk about, you know, how much they're making, but um, people will share information with each other, but there is for up and coming brand new people. If you're not connected to those authors, it is hard to find out what a fair rate is. And, um, yeah, so that's that. I definitely think there is, you know, authors. I mean, yeah. the agents earn definitely earn their pay because they can help cut through the muddy waters of you know all the stuff that you just don't know as a brand new author. So, so there's mm-hmm. definitely some. And so, so it sounds like um, you know being connected to your writers group though must be helpful too. So when you go into into book two, you have a little more information. You've done this once before, you know, and you have. Um, I mean, do you feel just like wiser about the whole process now that you've been through it? Well, I don't know if wiser is the right <laughs> word because because I only have my experience to really compare it to. So right. and and you know, truthfully, is there anything I would do differently with writing my book? No. You know, I'm really happy with my publisher. I'm ecstatic over my editor. My art director is like an angel sent from heaven. When I first saw the pages for the handmade marketplace, which is so listeners know it's not like a copy of your book. It's more like a, a really nicely printed version of your book from a fancy printer. So you can see like the actual colors and what the pages are really going to look like. Um, when I first saw that, you know, I burst into tears because my art director 
her name is Alicia Morrison. She's she's so fabulous that I didn't really know what I wanted my book to look like. You know, I instead I would say adjectives like cute. I want it to appeal to men and to women. <laughs> so I'm sending like all these really conflicting messages, like not pink, girly, you know, like right. I, I don't and know, cute and appeal to men, and yeah, yeah, that's kind of funny. Yeah. So 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 it, crazy talk, and she took all of that and made something that I could not have even imagined, and I love how my book looks, and that's due to her. So. You know, I, I don't know if I'm really, like, wiser because, you know, when you write a book, lot, there's lots and lots and lots of decisions that get made that have absolutely nothing to do with you as the writer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know if an agent would negotiate, like, Carrie did not want you to use Time New Roman. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't think that they, like, put that kind of thing in your right, right. contract. But maybe they do. I don't know. I right. don't have an agent. You might have more difficulty I, actually getting a deal if you get that, uh, like, and you have to send her pink M&Ms on the third Friday of the month every month to keep her happy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a whole different world. But, you know, I definitely would feel more comfortable. And I have a friend who is just now beginning her own book journey. And I, I felt good. You know, I was able to show her my contact and say, this is what I did and this is what I got and these are the changes that I made. And she was able to take some of what I had to say and turn around because she also doesn't have an agent. And she was able to turn around to her prospective publisher and say, okay, this is what I'm thinking. And, you know, so she was able to negotiate a, a little more confidently based on my information, just like I was able to negotiate a little more confidently based on my friend Gina's information when I went to her you know, so I definitely would feel more comfortable, but it would be ideal to have an agent mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. But that's a whole, you know, you need to have a book deal to get an agent, but you need to have an agent to get a book deal. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of ways for, for people to do things, no matter what your project is. If you want to write a book or if you want to make a chair or if you want to sew a skirt, you know, you can find all kinds of directions and instructions and tips and tricks and tutorials for doing the same thing and just just like you find the pattern that works for you mm-hmm. you know you will find the system that works for you and my system is blindly call people cross <laughs> your fingers and try to do a good job and hope that somebody responds to you that's my whole philosophy. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the content of your book because we've talked a lot about how you got to, you know, how you got the book deal and how you put this book together, but um, what can readers expect when they open this up and start reading it? I hope that they can expect a, a, a different kind of perspective. I mean, I the book I think the book will be like groundbreaking for some people. And then I think the book will be like, "Oh, this could be old news for somebody who's really got social media down or who understands how to apply for a craft fair. They've, you know, been in two craft fairs a year for the past five years. But I think that there's something in it for everyone, or at least I hope that there is. And I hope that people find encouragement in it as well. Because even if you know, okay, I can reach more people if I have a blog. Okay, I can, you know, build community around myself if I attend a knitting group or, you know, so some of the concepts might seem fairly basic, but the trick is, is it seems like people 
avoid doing the basic work because it's just that, it's basic. Mm-hmm. So they think, oh, you know, it can be as easy as starting a blog. You know, that's not going to help increase my sales. Or um, sometimes doing the basics is what makes the other things happen. And because basic things can be so easy, I think that they're easy to neglect. Like That's true. You know, oh, I, I don't, you know, I'm obviously trying to come up with another really awful metaphor, but I can't do it. <laughs> um, um, you know, so I, I hope that people find encouragement in my book, and I hope that people find a sense of community, because I think that that is, aside from talent and desire and um, passion, if, if that's a word that works for you, aside from those things, I think that one thing that people really need to have a successful business handmade or not as community. You have to have customers or else you don't really have a business. You know, you just have a lot of incredibleness on your shelf that you've made. But without customers, you don't have a business. And I think that the whole book is really geared towards helping people find customers in lots and lots of different kinds of ways. You definitely have some major players, though, in the craft world, people with far bigger um, websites and far more, um, you know, rep- and just pe- people with really massive reputations in the craft world. So it's, it's really a treat to be part of this. But why don't you talk about some of the people that were your big players and how you went about luring them to be part of this book? I chose people to be in the book and um, in a really kind of organic way. I, I, first of all, I had a list of like dream contributors and what made each one of these people a dream contributor to me meant that I had some sort of connection to them, whether or not they knew me at all, which I would say 95% of them had no idea who I was, but I felt connected to them in some way. I supported their work. I bought their products. I listened to their podcasts. I admired their photographs. I thought that they were an amazing stylist, like whatever skill I was looking for them to talk about in the book. I wanted to make sure that it was something that I really admired and really supported because the truth is we all have an online community, whether or not people know they're in your community doesn't necessarily have to be the point. You know, if you read a blog every single day and you really admire it and you admire the work that the blog editor does or that the artist does, then you're connected to that person because you know, you have their stuff hanging in your home, you you wear what they make, their voices on your iPod, you know, these are people that you are connected with, and these are people that somehow offer you something that makes you come back for more and more and more. So I really wanted everyone in the book to be somebody that I felt connected to, even if it was on this really small, anonymous kind of level, they're all still my people, you know, in my heart. And um, so I took that big list and I whittled it down to, you know, I broke that list down into what skills could I really ask this person about or what do I already know about them through their website or their artwork that would make them compelling when this is what my question is, whatever the question may be. And um, I also wanted a really good mixture. I didn't want to feature just uh, you know, famous crafters or famous blog editors or um, really popular people. I, I wanted to show a really wide range of 
of handmade makers who are making a business in the book so that, you know, you could relate to anybody on some sort of level, you know, people who are just starting out, people who work full-time jobs and have families, but still manage to have an online store to people who quit their day jobs and are just winging it to people who are paid professionals in their area. You know, I really wanted a, a good mixture of people so that readers could find new inspiration or become more knowledgeable about a current inspiration that they might have. So that's how I chose people. And then I just wrote an email, which I hoped sound, you know, wouldn't sound crazy like, oh, okay, here's this person I don't know anything about saying that they're writing a book and that they want me to be in their book. I don't know what that's about and I'm just going to ignore that. You know, I was really afraid of that happening. And um, some people I had to write a few times to say, I'm still here. I still am really interested in including you in this. And, you know, I I really feel like I'm not going to write the same book without you. And this is why. And um, I only had one person say no which was great. And that person had a really good reason. It wasn't that they weren't interested or um, willing, but they were writing their own book at the same time and on really tight deadlines and just did not have the um, energy to focus on someone else's creative project, even for a little bit. So once I sent out an email and I would get a response back from somebody that said, okay, sure. I'd love to do this. Then I sent them a questionnaire and I It was a pretty lengthy questionnaire, I would say, and some questions I asked a few different ways, and some people would catch that and say, I answered this in question four, (laughs) or some Uh. people would would re-answer the question but say something totally different than what they had said in the question that was very similar, and their answer for the question that was very similar. And so I got a lot of information that way, and I had pages and pages and pages of responses once they were all printed out, it was like another book. It was pretty incredible. And then those responses got whittled down into quotes. So while some people have full interviews in the book, those people who have full interviews are people who can really teach a skill rather than um, give a perspective. So that's sort of how it's broken down in the book. Some people like yourself or um, Diane Gilliland from Crafty Pod, which is another podcast that I really like, you were both able to speak to like technical skills and community building skills of why having a podcast is a really great thing, why you should either make one, why you should try to participate with one, why you should respond to one, why you should be interviewed on one, you know, to um, really in-depth interviews with Grace Bonnie from Design Sponge and Holly Becker from Decorate you know, they gave really good perspective on like how you could get on a blog like theirs or what they look for in submissions or what they think is interesting to learn from people. So people who could really teach skills like the amazing Caroline DeVoy from jcarolinecreative.com. She's a fabric store owner who used to be a full-time accountant. And when I wanted to cover taxes and bookkeeping, I went to her because she's so funny and she's so she's able to break down really tough topics into really personable answers that if you understand not one single thing about bookkeeping, she can make it 
accessible. Right. So yeah. I read. I, I really enjoyed. I, I never imagined that I would enjoy reading anything about taxes. <laughs> I actually really enjoyed her comments and the examples she gives. So she is very talented at putting things into terms that those of us who want to just take a nap when we hear the word taxes or run screaming from the room. Um, <laughs> it's, so yeah, that was a great selection. Yeah, she's she's really amazing. So there's some longer interviews in the book with people who can really teach you something, and then everybody else can teach readers something with their little tips or tricks, whether that's how to organize their space or where they get their inspiration from. And I, t- to tell you the truth, I came up with a lot of people in the – I approached a lot of people because I am a repeat customer of theirs. Um, for instance – Betsy Cross, who also happens to be somebody that I know in real life. She has a website called BetsyAndAya.com, and she makes jewelry. She's an actor turned artist, and she's incredible. She's amazing, and I knew that she would have, like, a lot of wisdom to impart when it comes to making a change. You know, you've been doing one thing for so long, but you have this other whole dream or side of yourself. What do you do? I knew that Betsy would be a great person to go to for that. Megan Risley is somebody else who's in the book who, you know, this this woman works three jobs and still cranks out the most beautiful fabric accessories that are useful, utilitarian, well-made, and she runs her store. She gives great customer service. Her packaging is incredible, but she does it all while she has a full-time job. So she had a lot of good things to say about balancing your time or deciding what's a, you know, a good priority or what you really want to do. Um, uh, Jenny Ryan, you know, I turned to her to talk a lot about craft fairs and also Allison Gordon. Jenny Ryan wrote a book last year that came out, So Darn Cute. She runs Felt Club in L.A., which is an amazing craft fair. She owns a store now called Home Ec where she sells handmade goods and she teaches classes, everything from how to use a power tool to how to crochet, which I just think is so incredible, to um, people like a real-life friend of mine, Lori Mae Coyle, who's a stationary designer. And, you know, she's just somebody with a lot of talent and a lot of ideas and a go-co, and she's making it work. And I just think that that's so inspiring that it's just like all these different levels, all these people on different levels to, you know, that hopefully really demonstrate that it's possible for anybody to have a handmade business, no matter where you're coming from or what your goals are. You know, if you just want to sell 20 things a year and keep buying cardstock so that you can keep using your GoCo because you love to use your GoCo, then that's possible, you know, but if you want to quit your job and own a brick-and-mortar store like Tara Swigger, you can do that too. And she is somebody that I met on Twitter, which is another great example of how social media can help your business. She is an amazing woman who was a secretary at a local university in her town for a long time who was making handmade yarn on the side. She was buying and spinning this yarn and selling it in her Etsy store, and she wanted to quit her job and do her yarn full-time. And she set up this whole system, and she's really open and honest about sharing her process with people and she now has a brick and mortar store in her town of Tennessee where she sells handmade yarn that she gets from spinners and dyers from around the world and she you know can sit in her cute little store all day long 
and work with yarn. It's like a dream come true for her. But she's somebody who started with a full time job with the objective, with an objective of leaving her job, and she did it. And it was so great to connect with all of these people for all of these different reasons and hear their stories or get their little tips and tricks. And I just loved including them in the book. And I hope that it adds like a different layer. If I was reading this book and not as the writer, I would probably be the kind of person that I am like go through and look at all the illustrations and read all of the quotes first and then get back to reading the chapters because I love hearing what what real people say about real things that I think about. Mm-hmm. Well, it gives, I love that kind of stuff. It gives people multiple entry points into the book. So it's not just start on page one and read all the way through. You know, you can um, you know, hear stories like Tara's and, and some of these other folks that have just made major life changes, you know, because they had mm-hmm. an idea, they had a goal, and they went out and did it, and it's awesome. Um, what can we expect next from you? Well, um, starting this spring in April, I am shooting to teach some online e-courses for um, handmade businesses. There's going to be a course on how to uh, improve your online store, your own online marketplace, whether you have a dedicated website or you have a shop on 1,000 Markets or Etsy, something like that, a place like that. So there's going to be some e-courses that people can sign up with to improve their shops. And I think that I've had a lot of requests for people to have more direction and instruction when it comes to marketing. And I'm going to have the Marketing Your Handmade Business e-course as well. I'm also working on putting out a small e-book with forms that handmade makers need for um, how to track their inspiration. Some of the things that I cover in the book, like whether it's like a re- um, receipt organization or inventory sheets, wholesale sheets, like examples of these different kind of line sheets and then how to customize them for yourself. There'll be an ebook available on my website in the spring for that. And I'm working on my second book proposal right now. So hopefully I get to write another book, but um I don't think it's going to be about crafts at this point in time, but we'll see if I have another craft sort of book in me. Um, the one I'm working on right now is an activity book for families. Oh, cool. And, yeah, and um, so that's kind of it. I, I hope to get to travel to some craft fairs this summer to promote the book. I think that that would be really great. Uh, I would love to go to Maker Fair in San Francisco and um, a lot of book promotion and getting my website up and going now that I'm not focused on the book so much. I am working on my own stuff. Some of the things I talk about in the book I'm going to be doing for myself now on a different level than I used to. And um uh, that's about it. I really don't have any concrete plans. You know, I just kind of wake up one day with an idea and then go with it. So no, that sounds these are the, to me. That's, that's yeah, these are what way. I've not woken a, up with lately. Yeah, not a bad way to live. But, um, well, thank you so much for your time. A special thanks to Carrie for sharing her story. And what a great story that was. We went some surprising places. And boy, do I love when that happens. Thank you, Carrie. You did a great job and kept us entertained and informed, so thank you. So if you want to enter to win a copy of The Handmade Marketplace, 
go over to craftsanity.com and leave a comment below the blog post about episode 113 and tell me something about your business. Maybe post a tip, like what have you, what kind of little thing have you done that's really helped you stay on top of things with your business? Or if you don't have a business, maybe post a question, like what do you want to know? But for those of you who have established businesses, maybe just post the one thing you wish you would have known before you started. Uh, I think for me, I wish I would have known that when you purchase boxes and it says the dimensions of the box on the bottom, uh, that's actually the in the interior measurement, not the external measurement. That quarter inch of thickness of cardboard has been kind of costly. So I had some, I made some pricing errors with the postage. So um, yeah, post your tip, or if you're a rookie when it comes to handmade business, post a question, and hopefully someone else who reads the comments can uh, post an answer. Or you know maybe Carrie and I can pitch in and and try to help you guys get the answers that you're looking for. Okay, I also want to thank a few people here. During my little hiatus, unplanned podcasting hiatus, Don in Maryland, Helmut in Germany, and Jay in California sent in some donations. So I really appreciate that, folks. And I hope I pronounced everybody's name right. My apologies if I didn't. But I really, really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Every little bit helps to keep this show going. And... um I really do appreciate that. I also want to thank my show sponsor, LibertyWorth.com. Libby Dibby Stuff and Style is all about being inspired by the joy of color and pattern and things that are both vintage and new. I had a great time checking out LibertyWorth.com and LibertyWorth.etsy.com because it's just fun stuff. I really, I really enjoyed. I like the skirts especially. There's also hand step charms, baby slings, and bags, and you can check that out at libertyworth.etsy.com and you can see more items at libertyworth.com and you can read the Libby Dibby blog at libbydibbystuff.blogspot.com so yeah it's really fun go check it out a special thanks to Liberty for your support I really appreciate that if you would like to become a sponsor of an upcoming episode of Craft Sanity you can click on the sponsors link and read the details it's pretty basic um, not a real complicated process so if you're interested, just um, let us know. You can contact us, and we'll we'll get you set up. And that we do have some open spots for upcoming shows, so let us know if you're interested. I do not plan to take another hiatus, so I have another episode recorded, and my next episode is going to be actually an interview with Wendy Mullen from Built by Wendy. Yeah, and this was a really fun interview. I, I've been having so much fun with these interviews. And I think that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a little after show with some updates. Okay, so I'm going to get started working on that next episode. And in the meantime, craft sanity, my friends. It works for me. Hello, everyone. Thanks for sticking around for the after show. I appreciate that. I uh, wanted to update you. I'm still working hard on my training uh, for the Fifth Third Riverbank Run, which is coming up on May 8th. And as I've said before, I'm part of a 10-member Road Warrior team, and each of us is partnered with a local charity. And my charity is Safe Haven Ministries, which is a, a shelter for women 
and children. And basically, I am instead of going around and asking for pledges, what I'm doing is hosting an apron contest. It's kind of an unusual contest because we're using men's neckties as part of this competition. Safe Haven already had a project underway where they were collecting men's neckties to use to make a quilt. And this is, um, they chose to do that because they wanted to symbolize how domestic abuse is not just a women's issue and that men and women really have to work together to end it. So they're going around collecting ties from prominent men in the community and then they want to work on this quilt. And so when I came on board, I said, you know, I'd really like to do an apron show. And I've been wanting to do an apron show for quite a long time. We kind of came to the conclusion that, yeah, an apron show would be good and that they had requested that we keep that tie theme going. So what we're doing for this competition is that um, every apron must include a men's necktie, fabric for men's necktie somewhere in its construction. It doesn't have to be a tie in its entirety. You can take one apart and you know, make an embellishment, uh, do some kind of patchwork with it, whatever strikes your fancy. The aprons are going to be judged and we'll select some winners. Uh, but what the cool part is, this is the part that I'm most excited about, is we're going to actually have a show at the YMCA. has this really cool room that has glass, a kind of glass on two two sides where you can kind of see right into the room. And they had part of the Art Prize exhibit, the international art show that kind of took over Grand Rapids last year. And it's going to happen again this fall. Um, so we're going to take that same space and just put aprons up. And I'll be using like some clotheslines and someone has offered vintage clothespins. So I, I'm pretty excited about it. And I'm really hoping that some Craft Sanity listeners will enter this contest I think it's going to be really fun. It, there's no entry fee. You just have to be willing to part with your apron because the aprons will be auctioned off for charity. But before they go anywhere, I'm going to be photographing them and putting together a Flickr gallery. And I might even do something else. I'm not quite sure, but I really want to have a really nice record of all these entries. And since we're using neckties, obviously these are not going to be washable aprons that you can you know, cook in the kitchen with. They're, so they're going to be more novelty in in nature, which opens the door then to a lot of different things. I know a lot of the aprons I've been making recently have embroidered text on them. I've been using beads. I've done a little bit of printing on my aprons. And, you know, I, I don't really have traditional aprons. In fact, I'm not really making any traditional aprons anymore. Uh, there's always something kind of unusual about them. And I do like to keep the ones. I've been running in aprons, and that's kind of what led to this whole apron show in a way because I uh, applied for my position on the Riverbank, the Road Warrior team, where like I brought an apron, the apron I wore to the race last year and actually raced in because I was mad. I think I've told the story a couple times before, but I was upset that I was <laughs> not ready for the 25K, and I... The day before the race, I changed my registration from the 25 to the 10. Uh, the 10 is only 6.2 miles compared to the 25 is uh, 15 and a half. And I knew that if I tried to run 15 and a half miles at a race pace, I was going to be in you know really bad shape at the end. Uh, just wasn't ready for the race. So I made I stayed up really late the night before the race and I made an apron. And you know it said I run for apron awareness dreamers and me you know I kind of took the race logo and they were having people they had I run four and they had 
people were encouraging people to take sharpies and write on their shirts. So I kind of embroidered my own take on that onto an apron. And um, I was exhausted when I showed up for the race, but I was amused by the fact that I was wearing an apron. I was the only woman that I saw out there in an apron. And it was it kind of got me through because it was this amusing distraction to the fact that I just was not able to work the training into my schedule. So this year is a completely different thing. I'm training with a group of people. It's been a lot easier to commit to the training because once you sign on with this group, you have accountability partners. We have to blog about what we're doing. So you can't really slack off in this situation, at least not easily. So that's been really good for keeping me on on track. So anyway, um, my aprons are, are not, you know, they're, most of them are washable because if I'm running in it, I definitely want to be able to wash it because that's just nasty if you can't. But, yeah, there's some concerns. People are like, oh, you know, I can't wash an apron that has ties on it. Well, I have thrown some some ties in the wash, and, yeah, they do. If they're silk, they, you know, they kind of become a little bit unruly. So, yeah, obviously these aprons are going to be more novelty in nature unless you make some kind of embellishment with tie fabric that is detachable in some way, like if it's a pin embellishment or something. So there's some ways around that if you really want to make sure that you're making a a washable apron. So there are some ways around it. But yeah, I really hope that um, some of you are interested. And basically this is going to be, the deadline is April 19th to mail in your entry. And you can go to craftsanity.com and download an entry form. Anyway, I think this is going to be kind of an unusual and fun way to raise money for a cause like this. And if you're local, I'm going to do a sew-in on March 21st where we're going to be making some aprons at the Y. And um, so from 1 to 4, we're going to have a sew-in and we'll be making some aprons. And I'm trying to, you know, round up some fabric that so that we'll have some fabric to work with. And uh, But bring your machine. Um, obviously, if you have fabric that you want to work with, bring that along. If you have fabric you want to donate, you can bring that along too. Uh, trims, any embellishments, um, anything. I'll have neckties. I have a lot of neckties that I've been collecting. So I can bring those and we'll see what we can come up with. So that will be fun. And if anyone who sews during that time will get credit for the contest. Uh, you know, you get credit for all those aprons you work on and uh, can enter those into the contest. So that will be fun. Entries can be sent either to me or Safe Haven, and the addresses are online. On the top left corner of my blog, there's a, a little link that goes to the apron contest. So, yeah, I hope you enter, and I'll uh, be sure to update you guys on you know how these aprons come out. I think it's going to be fun, and I'm hoping that if this takes off, I mean, I think I might try to do some kind of apron event every year, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself. The only other news, I don't know if you guys have been hearing jumping and purring in the background, but we have a new member of our family. Uh, We have uh, Justine joined us last week. She is um, a Siamese cat, and I'm still kind of in disbelief that I have a cat because I've always considered myself a dog person. I've never had a cat before, and we lost our dog in June and still miss her dearly. And the kids have been asking for another pet. And we weren't quite ready to get a dog. I don't I don't know how long that will take for me to feel ready to get a dog. And you just can't replace your dog, you know. It's not that simple. So situation came up. My husband heard that there's a, a guy looking to find a home for this little Siamese cat, and we went and visited her, and she played really well with the kids. So 
we have a little cat now. So that means I'll be making crafts for cats at some point because, um, yeah, she's, she's a lot of fun and just has scared the daylights out of me a few times though, because she, um, yeah, she's, uh, I'm not used to animals jumping out or coming out of nowhere. My dog, I could hear her when she was coming. Can't always hear this cat. So, uh, that's, it's going to be a new experience, but anyway, that's all the news I have to share at this point. So I'm going to get back to work. I got to head out for a craft column interview soon. So you guys have a great day and I'll be back at the mic with a new episode in just a little bit. Happy crafting.